Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. got a ticket to ride and she don't care because she's listening to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank the Beatles for writing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling. I also want to thank Steve Crawford who told me about two or three years ago what a ticket to ride really is. Wow. Look it up. I'm John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling. If you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed we'll give you a wicked good and raw bone podcast. Before we get started, I want to invite you to join our Facebook page where we hang out and talk wrestling. Sometimes we talk other things, baseball, football, I don't know. I say this like every four or six weeks. Look, I understand you don't want to get mixed up in the whole Facebook thing. Uh, I actually got a couple of nice emails about Stick to Wrestling from people who didn't want to get anywhere near Facebook. And let me just give everyone some advice. You know, I don't do the regular Facebook thing. James Dimmick was nice enough to email me. Carrie Silken, former uh, ROH owner, was nice enough to email me. Guys, get on Facebook and here's what you do. You ready? You lie to your family and friends and tell them you don't do Facebook. Be like me. Lie to your family and friends. Don't tell them you're on Facebook and you avoid all that nonsense. I'm your mentor. Anyway, uh, what else do we have? Oh, I want to thank Mark Rowland for his generous contribution to Stick to Wrestling. Um, If you would like to donate to this ad-free, totally free podcast, donate PayPal at prowrestlingarchives at gmail.com. No amount is too small. No amount is certainly too large. If you think about it, if you donate $50, that's less than 25 cents per 60-minute episode. It's a bargain. Or don't You don't have to if you don't want to. But anyway, I want to bring on a guest we've had on before. The last time he was on, I had to literally podcast from my closet because the landscapers showed up. We're not going to have that problem today. Introducing Mr. Jim Valley, the king of recovery. Thanks for coming back on. You know, uh, John, I was going to tell you, you have another well-wisher. I do? Yes. Tony Khan. This is absolutely true. I know each week you start with a fake well wish from some band, but I kid you not, I tweeted out before we did the show that I was going to be on and what we're going to talk about. And as we're getting ready here, I'm sitting here. I swear this is real. I get a message from Tony Khan that says, give my best to Mr. McAdam. I'm long overdue to catch up with him, Ari, wrestling, and college football. That is a real message from the real Tony Khan to you. I totally believe that. I mean, Tony and I go back to the AOL chat room days, and he was a good guy, and he's still a good guy. I wanted to have Tony, if you're listening, I wanted to have him on show number 200, and I really just didn't have a chance to, you know, get in contact with him but um tony you know i'm planning on having a big show number 250 and i'd love to have you on as a guest a we had great guests on for show 200 but i mean you know tony would be a big deal if i could get him for 250 but yeah thank you for that that's good i'm glad you have big guests for the 200 and the 250 and what am i like 203 what is this (laughs) something like that yeah i know where i rate i'm not mad 
You don't sound bad. No, no, no. <laughs> All right. Oh, one thing, I love this show that we're about to do, and I believe it's going to be a, a two-parter where we do year-end awards looking at the Wrestling Observer and Pro Wrestling Illustrated and compare those awards and who we would have voted for. Um we're doing 1987 today because 1987 was uh, 35 years ago. We did 1982, which was 40 years ago. Or no, we did 81. And I like the show so much, I'm going to stop doing that like 30, 35, 40 format. I'm just going to like do them every three months. I enjoy them. One thing I think I'm good at, and Jim, I don't know if, if you're good at this. I am good, I think, at being able to go back and say, okay... It is January 1st, 1988. Who are you voting for? Like, I'm good at, at kind of capturing January 1 through January 31st, 1987. Okay. I, I was looking for applause, a standing ovation, uh, something. Is that what you want? <laughs> Jeez. No, I was just like kind of you thinking, okay, are you good at that? Your, you damn millennials and your trophies. You've got to <laughs> have those all the time. Uh, I, I, I need praise. Anyway. Yeah. That's why you got to follow me on Twitter. I feel good when I have a lot of followers. More, more, more. Who was the worst on interviews, in your opinion, in the year 1987? You know, God, this is so subjective. Yes. And I will say this. So many people talk about, oh, it was so much better back in the day when they could talk and do their own interviews. A lot of the interviews sucked and were repetitive, and were cliche-ridden, or copied a phrase in a movie that was popular at the time. Whatever. A lot of the interviews did suck. Just people don't want to remember that. But for pure suckage, I'm going to go to my own territory and talk about Scott Doring, or Scott Boring. He was a big, barrel-chested muscle guy. Looked like... David Sammartino, friends with Tom Zank, brought him out. They were tag team partners. Then Zank left, and somehow this guy who can't talk, can't wrestle, was like the top babyface. I got Portland Wrestling in the mail in 1987, and there was good Portland Wrestling. Like, you know, early 80s, late 70s. Portland Wrestling was just terrible in 1987. It made a comeback in like 89, 90. But, I mean, it was so bad, I would just fast forward through these tapes. And this is, 87 was when the grappler came in, and it hadn't really gotten in full gear yet. So, it pretty much sucked most of 87. You know who was really bad on interviews in Portland? And this guy, he was one of my favorites at one point, and he went downhill quickly, was Bobby Jaggers. I thought he stunk on the mic. He rambled a lot, which was kind of the problem. Yeah. Uh, okay, I can. So yours is Scott Doring. I put a lot of thought into my mind, and this is where I'm crazy. Like for the past week, I've been going back and forth on like worst feud of 1987, worst interview, probably the worst interview in 1987. And I apologize if this is too soon. Okay. And he got better, and he improved to the point where he was good, and that's what's important. You improve. But in 1987, I got Florida Wrestling on cable, and Scott Hall, man, wow, he was oh, yeah. bad on the stick. And yeah, like I said, no, I know he recently passed, no disrespect, and he got better. That's what counts, but yeah, he was terrible. 
Yeah, he never found himself for years. I mean, if you weren't around, you would have saw, if you would never know, that like 85, Vern pushed the heck out of him. He's big. I see him in the magazines, on TV every now and then. You're like, this guy's going to do it. And then he does nothing for so long that you just write him off. But no, he, he stuck with it and came through. Yeah, there was a story <laughs> one of the wrestlers was telling me in 89 when Scott was in uh, WCW, he a- accidentally got juiced during a match, and he was like backstage basically panicking. And this wrestler was an old-timer, and he was just not very pleased with Scott at that moment. A lot of people over the years have not been pleased with Scott. That's a large group. I mean, in in fact, it was. Scott had his close friends, and I heard a horrible story about Scott. We all found out that, you know, he broke his hip, which, you know, led ultimately led to his demise. I found out that um, when he fell, like, he couldn't move, and he was on the floor for, for, the word used was days. I don't know how many days, but, like, days plural I can't imagine being on the floor with a broken hip, unable to move all by myself. I mean, that's horrible. That would be awful at that age, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, I would uh, hours would be awful. Never mind, you know, for, minimum forty-eight hours. But anyway, all right. Worst manager. Oh, by the way, the Observer gave worst interview, and I, I don't get this one to Bugsy McGraw. I mean, he wasn't good, but he wasn't out there very long. Yeah. I don't- I don't know. I mean, I watched. Me? I watched all of Crockett's programming in '87. You know, uh, NWA Pro Wrestling worldwide. Of course, I watched all of the TBS shows. I just don't remember Bugsy McGraw being good or bad or you know nothing. He was he was barely part of the promotion. But the Observer hated him in this in this year, as we will see. All right. Um, by the way, I want to let, let everyone know what I did was I wrote down all of my selections before I even looked at Pro Wrestling Illustrated or The Observer. Just, you know, I, I wasn't, you know, biased in any way. Worst manager, who do you got? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. As I looked at everybody, you had Bobby Heenan, who was awesome. And then. Nobody else did anything. I don't. I really have a pick here. I'm sorry. Uh, that's okay. <laughs> I would have gone with Sir Oliver Humperdinck because he was so bad okay. in the WWF. But I he thought, was good okay. enough. I thought about it, but I didn't think he. I put him at a low bar, but not like awful. No, I. I, I well, like I said, there were. It was like there were two Sir Oliver Humperdings. The second part of the year, he was in the WWF, and he was just awful. First part of the year, he was in Florida, and I liked him. He really wasn't a manager anymore, but he was doing commentary, and he was the host of the show. And when the show came on, it said, "Exciting star of Southern professional wrestling, Sir Oliver Humperdink." Which exciting star cracked me up. I never realized reading the magazines until I finally saw him a few times on television. I was like, oh, he's a carbon of Lou Albano. He's he's a lesser Lou Albano. I never realized that until I saw him in person. Yeah, he, he kind of reminded me of Albano. He was really good in Florida. 
in the early 80s, and time caught up to him. The Observer, of course, gave it to Mr. Fuji. Uh, gave it to Mr. Fuji. Um, they eventually named the award after him, and I actually went with Paul Jones, and I'll tell you why. Mr. Fuji was on TV. He wasn't on TV every week. Paul Jones was on WTBS every single week, just being horrible, and then he was on the B&C shows as well. I mean, Paul Jones wasn't good in 85 and 86, but now it's 87. He doesn't have anything really going on. I mean, he lost. He had Rick Rude and Manny Fernandez earlier in the year, and as the year went on, he had nothing. And if, if you're not good in the first place, you have nothing to talk about, that's a problem. Okay, hang on. Huh? I had forgotten about Paul Jones, and when I was going through all of the research that I was doing, he never came up. And I don't know. I, that's a glaring omission. On one hand, though, the good news is that I didn't have to see Paul Jones because he was awful. And as a kid watching him, he was old. And his interviews, like I said, were very cliched. And his guys were awful. And I didn't want to see Jimmy Valiant as a kid. I've come to appreciate him when I'm older. But in the moment, I thought he was terrible as a kid. So, yeah, I, I've my bad. Forgive me. I would like permission to please cast my vote for Paul Jones. And now okay, I remember. We're, we're in agreement. I, I hated him. You're bringing <laughs> out something that had been buried for years. All right. You know, it, it's funny. I mean, I knew how bad he was, you know, before I started reading the magazine, uh, getting the Observer, getting the newsletters or whatever. But, you know, now I'll go back and I'll watch, you know, some of the stuff on Peacock. And I'm just like, oh, my God, this guy is, is beyond awful. But anyway, they, they did a favor to keep him around. Uh, yeah, it's funny. As soon as that company got bought out uh, and Jim Crockett no longer owned it, Jones was gone like within weeks. I did not miss that. <laughs> All right. Worst tag team, and this is. Uh, by the way, we haven't mentioned Pro Wrestling Illustrated yet because they ha- they have don't do worst tag team or anything like that. The Wrestling Observer Newsletter once again, Jimmy Valiant and Bugsy McGraw were voted the worst tag team of 1987. I don't get it. I barely remember them teaming. And then I go back and I check the history of WWE. Thank you, Richard and Graham, for that great website. In 365 days, they teamed 19 times. I mean, you know, come on. They, they, they did not do any damage. You know, a lot of teams are like that looking back. That's not unusual, but that's a good point. Okay. Did you have a pick for worst tag team of 1987, Jim? Why are you giving me all of these first? But I will, I will do that. And I will go again to my home promotion. Because I need to acknowledge someone that I don't particularly care for. And that is Coco Samoa. And I'm going to go with Brady Boone and Coco Samoa. Talk about a uh, a championship tag team that needs to use a booster seat to uh, go out and eat. Those guys were what? Five feet tall? How were they tag team champions? I don't know. Coco Samoa... Awful interview. He was a poor man's C.V. Offy. And Brady Boone, there was nothing there. I'm sorry. Nice referee. Good guy. Wrestler, not so much. I actually liked Brady Boone in 1987. And because 
like I, I didn't understand that, hey, he's just a high spot guy. That's it. He can't really work. Like, you know, once you look at him as a worker, you're like, oh, man, you know, he's not very good. Wasn't Siviafi like an enforcer for some like drug mob I thing? I don't know how this works. Yeah. I've never heard that really. Now, I I believe I read that in like 88, 89 that, you know, he was, I don't know, he was a some sort of a collector or something like that. So anyway. Look, if anyone's listening, I want to make it clear. I don't know anything about that. This is the first time I've heard that. See, the All office, I know, and I'm not saying nice he was, I'm saying I read it somewhere. Whatever. Don't get me in trouble. <laughs> I'm trying not to get Brian Last in trouble either. Uh, my pick for for worst tag team was Nikolai Volkov and Boris Zukov. The Volkov versus Sheik tag team was getting really old, and it ended when Iron Sheik got fired by the WWF for getting pulled over with uh, drug paraphernalia with Hacksaw Jim Duggan. And talk about just the WWF doing the laziest thing imaginable. They they bring in another Russian to team with Nikolai, and it, it didn't even, like, spice things up. Zukov was just terrible. One of the worst fake Russians ever. Ah, but 1987, we would be remiss if we didn't mention probably the worst Russian that made it to big national TV, Vladimir Pietro. You know, Vladimir Pietro was so over at first, and then the guy fell off a cliff. But you're right, he was terrible. Yeah, well, that's why he fell off a cliff. You know, and I've talked about this before, John Nord, the barbarian, was offered that role, and he was crazy enough to turn it down because he didn't want to shave his head. Like, that would have been a big-time career move for him. And, you know, shave your head, man, doesn't matter. Surprisingly, not the worst decision in Judd Norn's life. What was the worst decision? No idea. I'm not touching that either. Quit okay. trying to get me. Quit trying to get me in trouble, John. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's go to oh, now. We're going to have a positive one. Uh, manager of the year. Who was the, in your opinion was manager of the year in 1987, Jim? I mean, if you are talking about. Actual accomplishments, you gotta go with Bobby Heenan, carrying things for the legendary show of the era and WrestleMania 3. From a kayfabe standpoint, you go with Jim Cornette, who kept his team together and uh, won. Maybe J.J. Dillon from a kayfabe standpoint. Those are my thoughts. I think from a kayfabe standpoint, it absolutely has to be Bobby Heenan. I mean... You know, just WrestleMania three with Andre the Giant, but after that, he the the Heenan family were basically the top heels in the WWF. I mean, and Bobby Heenan, you know, who was better in nineteen eighty seven from a non from a non kayfabe standpoint? Um, was Cornette that much better? I'm not sure. Was Paul Heyman that much better? I'm not sure. I mean, Heenan, you know, he was a great manager. Oh, he's the best of all time. But if we're talking kayfabe, Heenan didn't win. He didn't win the title. He lost. So from a kayfabe standpoint, that's why I would gently disagree with you. You can't say he's number one from kayfabe standpoint. Okay, I can see that. I mean, well, I'm... uh, But in real life, no question. I mean, from a kayfabe standpoint, he got Andre the Giant to switch sides 
go up against Hulk Hogan, and he didn't win. No right. one has has beaten Hulk Hogan yet, but he formulated Hulk Hogan's uh, toughest challenger ever. I think from a kayfabe standpoint, you can't pick him because he didn't win. And kayfabe, yeah, I, I, kayfabe is about winning. True, and Jim Cornette did manage to, from a kayfabe standpoint, uh, his mom instructed him, you know, shake things up, and he fired Dennis Condry. He brought in Stan Lane and really improved the act. Yeah, made them more cosmetically appealing for the cable era. And you, well, you know what? From a kayfabe standpoint, then it's got to be J.J. Dillon. I mean, he manages Ric Flair, he manages the, the tag team champions and Tully and Arn, he manages the United States champion in Lex Luger. I'm fine with that. Okay. All right. And in in real life, uh, in both The Observer and the uh, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, Jim Cornette got the award. Um, he's certainly winning it in The Observer, and he's winning it in Pro Wrestling Illustrated because he's smart enough to make sure he's available to take pictures with the plaques that they give him. Well, of course. That's As we go on in these awards, we'll talk about Oh, of course. I mean, you know, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, I love those guys to death, but politics played into it, to say the least. Biggest shock of the year. Jim, what was yours? I guess, Andre, I mean, I never expected it. A lot of people talked about it for years, and I was like, nah, it's too late for that. And then when it happened, and then he, yeah, no, Andre turning. Okay. Biggest shock of the year to me was it, it, this was this one the observer one but it's mine too when all of a sudden the UWF was now in the part of the NWA from a kayfabe standpoint and by the end of the year it was gone it no longer existed the TV show was gone they no, they never mentioned the UWF title it was completely dismantled within 9 months that was going to be my non kayfabe choice i would also go with Ted DiBiase the initial shock of seeing him as the Million Dollar Man was jarring if you were a fan of wrestling and knew him beforehand. Yeah, I knew it was coming, and I actually, I think at the time, I knew that he wanted to get out of his, yeah, someone did tell me he wanted to get out of his contract with Watts, but uh, that, yeah, that was a but surprise because... To embrace the cartooniness of WWE and be such a character, um, that's what I'm talking about. Sort of and like Rotundo and IRS. Yeah, I, I can see that. And, I mean, it's funny. You know, we're talking about Pro Wrestling Illustrated. They actually made up a story about how he inherited a bunch of money, and that's how he became the million-dollar man. <laughs> Instead of just saying, hey, look, it's his new gimmick. Well, they always had stories for everything. They were great writers. I loved Pro Wrestling Illustrated and all those magazines. Looking back, I may have been, and I didn't realize it at the time, a bigger fan of the magazines than the actual wrestling. And I might have dropped off of wrestling and I never picked up a wrestling magazine. I was the same way. I mean, I you know, couldn't wait to get my hands on the, the newest edition of Pro Wrestling Illustrated or Inside Wrestling, The Wrestler. I mean... They were such a big part of my childhood and my adolescence. And I mean, I, I, I would get, go home and within 45 minutes, that magazine would, would be read from cover to cover. And then I would read them many more times when I was supposed to be doing, um, oh, what do you call that? Um, 
Homework. Oh, that stuff. <laughs> very, you know, not not sticking to wrestling. Very rarely did I bring homework home. I had a study hall, and unless I had like a big test or something, I'm like, look, I got here at eight. I left at two. I've done my part for the most part. But anyway, yeah, very rarely did I homework. All right, ah, uh, and uh, once again, biggest shock in the Observer was the UWF being sold. And you know what? You you look back, and I've mentioned this before, at the UWF in like late 86, early 87, there were a lot of empty seats visible on TV. Yeah. Maybe it shouldn't have been a shock. I love watching the show, but if you really pay attention, it's, it is very redundant. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I love the show, too. But, you know, Bill Watts was saying that he was losing $50,000 a week, and... He was like, you know, this is real money coming out of my pocket, and I just wasn't doing it anymore. But anyway, best heel in the—who was the best heel, in your opinion, of 1987, Jim? I mean, this is peak Ric Flair, so I'm sorry. I can't not pick him. I wanted to, but I looked at everybody. The only thing I would say is if you are looking at not only what they accomplished, but what they had to work with. I might go with Austin Idler, Tommy Rich, for driving so much business in Memphis with the legendary head-shaving stuff. When you look at all the territories that were struggling and or dying, they actually were making money. And that's, that's an amazing accomplishment, even if they weren't the biggest of all the crowd. No, you're. I mean, you're. You're right. And a little now. Here's the thing. Like, I, I like I said, I put a lot of thought into this. If I was, you know, going somewhere, not doing anything, I'm like, okay, who was the best best heel of 1987? And I kept saying to myself, Austin Idol was so good. I mean, I know he's not going to win Observer or PWI, but he was so good. I'm going to go Idol second and Ted DiBiase first. And even though Ted DiBiase was only a heel for about half the year, I'm still going with him. I thought the Million Dollar Man vignettes were just unbelievable. They were great. And then I look in the Observer and Austin Idol wins Best Heel. Someone that like I wrote off as, no, he'll never get it. I love Austin Idol. I, uh, was it 2016? I went out to the Charlotte Fan Fest just because he was making a rare appearance. And I ended up getting on stage and interviewing him. And actually meeting him, and we we chat every now and then. Love it. That, that is good to hear. That one. Of, I was just thinking about this too. One of my favorite wrestling stories is Austin Idol getting the giant check after he wins a battle royal, and he goes to the bank the next day and cashes the check, which he was not supposed to do. That is so funny. I always wanted to be like that. One of those guys that is just strictly business, gets it done, and if you don't like it, screw you. Just, but that's not me. I'm very indecisive you gave me the check and you signed it darling don't look at me anyway all right uh best heel in the observer once again austin idol in pro wrestling illustrated no surprise andre the giant and really andre i mean he was only around for wrestlemania and survivor series and a couple of appearances with hogan before that but you could argue on the andre the giant here but that's most hated in pw Ah, uh, good point. They don't, I they, mean, on, they don't put it as best heel. That's true. You're, you're right. Pro Wrestling Illustrated did do most hated. And 
I mean, Andre, you know, he, I thought he was a great heel. He comes out, he's all sweaty, he's a giant. You know, I, he did well in that role. He was so dismissive of the fans the way he looked down on everybody. Yes. He had a great face for that. I, I, and yeah, dismissive to the fans, dismissive to Hogan. I, I thought he did a great job. All right, let me get back Couldn't to talk, this. But that's <laughs> no, you're right. He couldn't, but he 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 was uh, he was a great heel regardless. All right, best babyface or in pro wrestling illustrated most popular. You know, Jim, as I started to think about this, I'm like, okay, best babyface. I'd like to vote for someone from JCP, right? And as I thought about it, I'm like, man, you know, their roster really fell apart on the babyface side in 1987. You had Dusty Rhodes, who was getting very stale. You had Nikita Koloff as his sidekick. And Nikita, you know, the, the whole thing wore off kind of fast. By the end of 1987, you know, Nikita was nowhere near where he was a year earlier in terms of popularity. And the thing with Dusty, the way he booked, you know, it was Dusty number one, his sidekick number two, and like five other guys tied for the next spot, which if you think about it, isn't number three, it's like number five. And that's one big reason why Ronnie Garvin crashed and burned as NWA champion. They couldn't do it with Dusty, they couldn't do it with Nikita, and they kind of had no other choice, no other good choices. Yeah, it was like rooting for a losing team with that booking. And if you're a kid... And it's kayfabe to you. You watch this and you're like, why are my favorites not winning? And they lose steam. And that's exactly what happened. Rooting for a losing team is a really good way to put it. Because the bad guys always won in JCP. It's like, you know, I had a friend growing up who was a big Montreal Canadiens fan. Instead of being a Bruins fan like he was supposed to be. But who was happier? His team won the Stanley Cup every year, and mine didn't. Speaking of not winning, how are those Mariners? How are the Mariners doing? No idea. <laughs> they were supposed to be. You know what? That that shows you like how little attention I've been paying to baseball this year. A, a sport that's hitting like two thirty three as of right now, May fifteenth. They got to do something about that. Lower the mound. Anything. Make the strike zone smaller. Okay. Um, but yeah, best baby face. Um, you know, like I said, I was, I was thinking about this, and I'm like, who was a better baby face in 1987 than Jerry Lawler? Nobody. Yeah, you, got, you have two choices, really. Hogan, Lawler. That's it. Yeah, and from a kayfabe standpoint, you know, most popular, I mean, I'm thinking it's Hulk Hogan, but yeah, as far as like being in front of the camera, Jerry Lawler, so are we once again again in agreement on Jerry Lawler? Great minds think alike, but here's the thing, talk about, this is what I want to discuss, come back to, most popular wrestler of the year in Pro Wrestling Illustrated, they gave it to Dusty. Of course they did. I mean, come on. I mean, they had to. I see why. It was all Hulk Hogan's year, but you can't give him everything. You've got to spread everything around. So that's that's what they did. They gave it to Hogan. So they got to give that to Dusty. It's, it is what it is. It, it is what it is. And you know what? They, I, if I'm if I'm working for Pro Wrestling Illustrated, okay, it's you know towards the end of 1987. It's like, okay, who are we going to give 
most popular to him. If I'm working there, I'm like, we're giving it to Dusty, no questions asked, because, you know, you're in politically with these guys. They are your allies. And, of course, you know, Dusty, of course, had a huge ego. You want to make him happy. Give him most popular wrestler. And, you know, get, and this way you can give wrestler of the year to someone else, in theory. Well, you give it to the right person. That's not politics. 87 is Hogan's year. He casts a shadow over everybody. It's hard not to talk about him. But here's the thing with Dusty. And look, all respect to the dream, if you will. And you're required to say, if you will. But I got so tired. I love the action in JCP. I loved the chaos and the violence and the feeling that anything could happen. There was a lot of fun. Bloody matches and cages and great interviews. Great. So many things that I loved and couldn't wait for every Saturday. But in 87, you have to understand, country music was primarily for old people. And everything in JCP was country. I was fine with Southern. Southern never bothered me at all. But the delineation is country this and twangy that we're winning this battle royal you get this big boot for some reason (laughs) i was i was so tired it felt like so much of the presentation of jim crockett came from dusty's tape deck i never thought of it that way but it it is so true and dusty for all of his good points and he, he certainly had them had no problem you know putting his taste out for everybody like having not one but two country concerts before the great american bash matches started guy's a legend today but in 1987 my mom listened to willie nelson <laughs> yeah i i totally hear what you're saying i mean uh, up here i mean we loved the the southern wrestling but you know no one up here well i don't want to say no one but no one i knew listened to country music it was way different and dusty was in love with it there's a delineation what i'm trying to say to you you follow me yes i do okay, great. Yes. all right worst gimmick uh this is a an observer only category uh, I had a runaway favorite, but Jim, let me let me get yours first. I I, what was your favorite? My least favorite, worst gimmick was Colonel De Beers. I mean, that gimmick was, was that flat any- out insulting, and it was something I did not want to say. I couldn't believe it either, to be honest. I remember watching. Um, so back then, back up for everybody, ESPN still carried. AWA wrestling in the afternoon. So Colonel De Beers, the South African racist, was on ESPN. I thought we were advanced back then. We were wrong. Anyway, I remember, was it Roy Firestone had a show? And they were talking about it like, this is very dangerous stuff. But people recognized it. But apparently, we never took action in the no, and, and, you know, the first time I saw it, you know, very rarely when watching wrestling in, like, you know, 86, 87, would I say, okay, I don't want to see this. Like, you know, I just did not want to see that Colonel De Beers gimmick. So do, do you have one, or a worse a worse gimmick? I think I will go. I, you know, I grew up watching Ed Wiskowski, Colonel De Beers. Mm-hmm. He was Northwest champion when I started to watch 
wrestling. So I sat through a lot of his long, boring matches. And the great thing about Colonel De Beers, all the charm of Colonel De Beers, but the slow matches of Ed Wiskowski. <laughs> That's a good way of looking for Yeah, you lived through the Mega Maharishi era, did you not? Well, and his philosophy, wasn't it? Because I know friends who trained with him Is that if the fans thought he was going too slow He would stop That is true I, I believe that I mean, the wrestler's mantra When the fans started chanting boring in like the mid 80s, you know, we're taking a headlock where, you know, you're not you guys are not going to uh, control our match. It would like completely stop until that boring chant went away. And then maybe it was a good idea. I don't know. I agree to a point on that. But I think Wiskowski took it to an extreme. I was, you know, if back in the 80s, like I would be around wrestlers for the first time. And I couldn't believe the size. I mean, if you thought these guys looked big on TV, you know, wait till you see, never mind a guy like the Warlord, a guy like Stan Lane. He's huge in, in real life, like, you know, compared to a regular person. Probably the biggest difference between what I saw on TV and, like, when I met Ed Wiskowski, oh, my God, that guy's huge. He took up so much space. Yeah, he's been in good shape. He's got, you know, some very large genetics. All right. In real life, Adrian Adonis won worst gimmick in the Observer, and in I, 87? You know, I, in '87, yes, he did. Okay. And well, we have to remember he got fired oh, from yeah, the WWF, okay. and then he went to the AWA, and he he kept that gimmick, which you know, and he insisted on keeping the gimmick, which is my understanding. I was watching one of his matches from 1987. And it was a weird thing to say on, for them to say on commentary. They're like, he has a 52-inch waist, which I'm like, okay, if that's real, that's insane. Well, and I had Adrian Adonis again right around the time I first started watching. And so oh, he, that's right. He was a tag team with Ron Starr. Oh, my God. Those guys could go. I was always excited to watch stars who came through the area go to New York or wherever I could follow them. And then the dress and everything, it was, it was sad and I hated it. I was enough of an Adrian Adonis fan. I dressed up as Adrian Adonis for Halloween in 1982. So I love the guy I actually got in, uh, in touch. His family has a Twitter account and I said hello to them, and I'm like, you know, wow, I got to see Adrian against Bob Backlund twice, against Andre the Giant. And, you know, they were very nice about it. And he was so good at one point, and even at his heaviest. And, Jim, he had to weigh for literally 400 pounds when he was in the AWA, and the guy could still move. It was incre- It was uncanny. Well, and, you know, my friend Fumi Saito, who I do a show with on Wrestling Observer, he was friends with Adrian. Went to his house in California, knew his wife B and everything. And he has some of the last pictures and interviews with Adrian. And he has dropped some weight. You could see it in these last pictures before he died. It's very tragic. It really was. And the way he died was absolutely horrible. His van basically careened off a cliff in some somewhere in New Brunswick, I think. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, he, I had seen him in Japan 
spring of 1987, and you're right, he was losing weight, and he had a deal to go back to JCP as the old Adrian Adonis with the leather jacket. They're just like, look, you got to get your weight under control, and just, what happened to him was, was just unbelievably sad. What I mean, he was a great talent. Watch him on the uh, YouTube of the Donahue show, where the wrestlers are on it. He's yelling at the crowd. He's brilliant. He really was, and I'm going to say this one more time on the show, there was an old expression that Jesse did the the talking and Adrian did the wrestling. No, Adrian could do the talking as well. No questions asked. And, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm... it sucks they got saddled with that gimmick and that he insisted on keeping it in the AWA. I thought that was a big mistake. What, or did they make him do it? No, I've always heard that, you know, they wanted him as the old 1981 in the AWA leather jacket, Adrian Adonis, and he didn't want to do it. Interesting. Yeah. Never. I don't know. All right. Best gimmick. Best gimmick. In your opinion, what was it, Jim? I mean... Some of these awards, I guess, I they need some clarification for me. Is this like a new gimmick, or is this just something that was in '87 that's good? Ah, that good we're, question. What are we talking here? I I think it's I should have clarified it, with you. I'm sorry. No, no, that's okay. I I think. Not necessarily new gimmick. I think if you had a good gimmick in 85, 86, and you kept it rolling into 1987, and it was still working, I think it definitely still qualifies. I don't know. Um, well, it's like you look at the top of the cards, and I don't really see too many things that I would necessarily qualify as a gimmick or something compelling enough that I'd want to give them the award that's what i'm saying okay does that make sense it does i mean you know you didn't see anything you particularly liked i did i loved it once again i talked about it earlier loved the million dollar man gimmick it was it cartoony by nwa standards it was uh mid-south certainly by wwf standards i didn't think it was that that crazy I just loved it. I loved everything about it. Um, I've said this before. When uh, Ted DiBiase initially met with the WWF, they wouldn't tell him what they were going to do with him. And Ted was thinking about going to the NWA. And Pat Patterson called Ted DiBiase. And he's like, look, you got to come here. Vince McMahon is going to give you the gimmick that he would have given himself if he were a wrestler. And I loved it. Now, in The Observer... Ted DiBiase, the Million Dollar Man, won, but this really surprised me. Okay. Ted DiBiase got 109 votes. The Honky Tonk Man, we're talking the Observer crowd here, got 69 votes. That shocks me. Why? Um, because the Observer crowd it was more of an old-school crowd that would reject a an over-the-top cartoonish gimmick like that. But he was drawing money. That's the thing. I would go, if you gave me those choices, I would pick Honky Tonk Man over DiBiase because DiBiase was just warming up. He hadn't had the ability to draw anything yet. Honky Tonk Man was Intercontinental Champion, his peak, drawing money, selling out. Yeah, I think you'd have to pick him first, but I want to make an earlier point. As an adult, I have embraced wrestling as theater and as an offshoot of the circus. I'm fine with it. As a, okay. as a kid in 87, I was a purist. 
I was under the impression in my mind for some stupid reason that if you could take out some of the Gaga, wrestling would be more popular and more people would like it. So when I saw stuff like Ted DiBiase, I was like, 13-year-old Luthez, he's killing the business. So no, I did not like any of that stuff. But looking back now, it's all good. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about it on the show before. I mean, Vince, Vince McMahon in 1984 uh, took a business that, you know, he was printing money every weekend and compl- completely tore down that model. And, well, the company's worth about $6 billion now, so he, he knows what he's doing. All right. Uh, and, and you're right, by the way, about Honky Tonk Man. At the end of the day, it worked. At the end of the day... At, towards the end of 1987, he was main eventing Madison Square Garden. He main evented the Boston Garden. And you're right, DiBiase wasn't there yet. He was getting there. He was going to be there in 88. Yeah. That's what. The, right. That's just my thoughts. But whatever, right. whatever the parameters are, go for it. All right. Worst promotion of the year, 1987. Jim Valley, what do you got for us? Oh, my goodness gracious. This is maybe the toughest decision. Really? Yeah. Well, you look at world class is struggling. You look at Florida is pretty much gone. The Midwest is awful, but no one can see it. Do you vote for that? Portland is still not great because Grappler hasn't really gotten things quite up yet. Um, You know, it's almost in some ways a tie for everybody, but JCP and WWE, it's kind of the state of the business, but I'm going to go with uh, whatever Bruiser was running. I watched those videos, and they are beyond awful, even though nobody saw them. Yeah, you know, that's that's interesting. I mean, you know, what is is truly worse? Like, if, if no one's watching it, if you no one even has access to it, can it really be the worst? I mean, World Class was still very much strong in syndication, and it was hard to watch that promotion, not even comparing it to 83, 84, and 85, even though I did. You know, I'd, I'd be watching this in 87 going, what has happened to this promotion? It, it was almost like they were just keeping the door, the store open until Kerry Von Erich could come back. And even then it didn't pick up. But yeah, it was just, you know, very, it was boring. What, what can I say? The, the angle stunk. The talent level was, was so nondescript. I mean, if I had to pick a worst year for any promotion in the 80s, it might be 1987 world class. Yeah, I would, if you're talking about promotions that people could see on a wide scale, you pick world class. But if you're talking just, Awful, awful. Just from a artistic standpoint, I'd go with the Bruiser stuff. Uh, yeah, I, I could see. I don't think I've, I don't think I've ever seen any WWA from '87. I've seen some from 1986, and Jim, I agree with you. It was bad. World Class also won it in the Observer, and they won it by a pretty long stretch. All right, worst feud of the year, 1987. Obviously, this is an Observer-only award. Jim, who did you go with? Paul Jones and everybody. <laughs> I, I mean, who was he even feuding with? I mean, oh, oh my God, they did question. that thing at the end where... Who did, who, what was the name of that guy who kept calling everyone Puddinhead? Well, it wasn't Lasertron. But no, I put it, it was, in there too. 
the mighty Wilbur. Thank That's you. Right. Thank you, Lou. <laughs> I just, that just jumped into my head. <laughs> it was it was the one of the worst angles Dusty had ever come up with to that point. And Dusty came out with some pretty bad ones. Again, um, getting back to WWE had some cool things and cool presentation. JCP had put in it. Yeah. I mean, at that point, you know, we, I think we, I knew at the end of 1987, Dusty had come to the end of his rope as Booker and just Jim Crockett never figured it out. All right. So I went with Worst Feud, and this is one I, I drove myself crazy with. I went with Terry Taylor versus Nikita Koloff. And I mean, it, the, the reason behind it, I was a big Terry Taylor fan. And the way they booked it, they made Terry Taylor look beyond incompetent. And coming into Starcade 87, I'm like, okay, Terry Taylor has to win the unification match, right? Because there's no other way. He's got to even the size. Nope, Nikita dominates him the first part of the match. Second part of the match, Terry Taylor gets him offense in but loses clean. And, I mean, he would be out of JCP in a year. It was almost like they, they created a feud just to bury a guy, and, you know, I know Dusty Rhodes and Terry Taylor didn't always see eye to eye, so it came across that way. That's a great choice. I would not dispute that decision at all. You're exactly right. Um, Nikita Koloff was cooling off and cooling off fast. Terry Taylor never heated up, and it just, there was nothing. Nope, they made Eddie Gilbert and Terry Taylor look, look, look like I said, totally inept. Uh, now, this one, the, who, the feud that, that won in The Observer kind of blew my mind. I was like, what? George Steele against Danny Davis. And I don't remember them feuding. I watched the WWF every week. I don't remember them doing any angles to build up a feud. I know they had matches, but that's not a feud. That's a program. Jim, do you remember anything about George Steele and Danny Davis from 87? Nothing at all. Okay. (laughs) All right. So we're in the same boat. I I totally do not get the uh, why these guys, why that was the worst feud in the Observer. That makes no sense. Uh, A feud that not only don't I remember, but may not have even existed. Anyway, worst match of the year, 1987. Jim Valley, what do you got? I'm going to go with, um, I, okay. Again, getting back to in this sense. Why is everything so difficult in my life, John? Why do I make this so hard? I thought, are we talking, are we talking a match that was terrible from a technical standpoint? Are we talking about a match that didn't draw? I just finally decided, go with Hogan Andre, because it was awful. You go back and watch it today, and you're like, this didn't stink up the joint? Wow, were we forgiving back then? <laughs> oh, you know what, though? I mean, we talked about it on the WrestleMania show. I, I didn't think, I, I, I don't think it was a good match, but I mean, it had enough distractions to the point where I, I didn't think it was painful to watch. And one other thing, Jim, I'm like you, I make things complicated. I mean, when it comes to best match, we'll talk about that uh, later. I mean, you know, is it the match from, you know, a house show that was five stars out of nowhere? Or, or was it something that was on WrestleMania? So with that in mind, I went with worst match. 
a match from WrestleMania 3, King Kong Bundy and the Midgets against Hillbilly Jim and the Midgets. I thought that was just embarrassing. I got something for you. Okay. Here's a little trivia for all your friends. You can have fun at parties. You know, Little Tokyo, first wrestler of Japanese descent to work at WrestleMania. I did not know that. You would have got me on that Well, you one. did know it. You just didn't think about it. But it's true. <laughs> now, you're right. It would have taken me a few minutes, but I might have eventually right there gotten there. The whole time. In The Observer, Hogan versus Andre won it. No surprise. You know, the, the Observer was big on work rate. Okay, worst television show. Jim, did, what was the worst television show? I, I, I think this one is pretty obvious. Probably but, world class. Okay. Probably world class. I, I went with world class. I mean, if it's the worst promotion, it's probably going to be the worst television show. And it was in The Observer, worst television show. All right, worst television announcer. Jim, you're a television announcer. You, you should be good at this. People always come at me with pitchforks. Now, I want to phrase this first. I have no ill will toward the man. I wish him all the best in the world, continued health and happiness. Uh, He's a very kind person. Many friends of mine know him and like him, but I did not enjoy Bob Cottle's work. Oh, wow. I'm telling you, everybody comes at me. So I'm just delineating. I wish him all the best. I wish him well. I wish him well. Uh, you know, and let, let, let me put a, a finer point on that. When we talk about, you know, worse this, worse that, it is never, ever personal. Um, I Sometimes. always liked... <laughs> usually not. I always liked Bob Cottle, and I think... Smoky Mountain Wrestling was dealt a real blow when he left. Uh, they they never really replaced him. And I know we're not talking about 87 now. Uh, I don't remember much about Bob Cottle in 87, despite the fact that he, he, he never he, said I anything. I watch the show every week. He doesn't say anything. Whoever was calling the match would say, it's a great crowd here tonight. Bob's like, yeah, it sure is. Or he'll just sort of repeat and regurgitate Another version of what the announcer just said. God, huh. God bless him, though. All right. I, you know what? I have all kinds of worldwide wrestling from 1987, so I will check out a couple of episodes and see if I agree with you. I mean, when it comes to worst announcers, I mean, where do you begin in 1987? I mean, if they had one virtue... You're pretty much off the worst television announcer list. I, I, in my opinion, there were two really good announcers and one okay announcer. We'll talk about that when we get to best announcer. I went with Ed Whalen because he was just so obnoxious and he would, you know, work his way into storylines and he was just, yeah, he, he was so tough to listen to. Another guy I considered, I'm ultimately giving it to Ed Whalen, but if Pete Doherty was behind the microphone more often, I absolutely would have given it to him. He was he had to be the worst of all time. That's, that's fair. I mean, who is the person that went, let's find someone with as few teeth as possible to put them on camera? 
and the worst Dorchester accent possible. I, I don't know what they were thinking giving him that job, or not just giving him the job, but letting him keep the job. And like I said, there's not much of it around. He would occasionally do a Boston Garden or a Los Angeles uh, sports arena or the one of the Houston shows. So they kept him kind of to a minimum, but oh my God, he was horrible. In real life, David Crockett got it in The Observer, and... <laughs> I don't remember much about David in 1987, but he he might have been the worst interviewer in the history of wrestling. I'm fine with that choice, too. I mean, I think David just got very excited trying to convey the action. And, you know, that's the thing. If you're there live, something is really cool. But if you're watching it on TV, for the most part, not as exciting, not as important because you're not there. So you got to... Kind of slow your roll a little bit, calling that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I've rewatched matches that I've seen from the Boston Garden, uh, like the Islanders against Rick Martel and Tito Santana. It was good on TV. It was great live. Big difference. Yeah. I think if you go back and watch it, he now has a certain charm. He, he does have a nostalgic charm, but I mean, I was watching some of his stuff from 1985 recently, and I mean, you know, he's got to know better than to sit there and bicker with the heels and take the mic away from them. Come on. He's the boss. Why not? His, his brother's the boss. As soon as Close his enough. brother wasn't the boss, he wasn't an announcer anymore. But anyway, all right. Now. Little positive note: Best television announcer, Jim. Who was the best TV announcer in 1987? Just the best TV announcer of all time, Lance Russell. I went back and forth on this, and I'm going with Lance Russell over Jim Ross, who were like the only two good announcers in 1987. Tony Schiavone was fine, but you know. At least he wasn't bad. He was okay. Uh, but I, I gave Lance Russell the, the award over Jim Ross because Lance kind of ran the television show. He did, you know, he was a great interviewer, and he w- he was excellent calling wrestling behind the mic. You know, I used to be a Gordon Sully guy, and then in hindsight on YouTube and stuff, I've watched I think all the Memphis stuff, and I really got to see and pay attention. To what Lance does. Now today, if you watch AEW, everybody loves Excalibur's work. He calls all of the moves. And I think that is what today's fan that wants AEW watches and wants. And I'm fine with that. But what Lance does is he talks about it from a casual fan perspective. To the casual fan. You know, explaining how, well... This guy's a good wrestler, Ken Raper. He just has not enough experience yet. And Jerry Lawler's doing this. And he will explain the intricacies in a very subtle, very straightforward way that anybody can understand. I think he's brilliant. I agree with you. And, well, Gordon Soley in 1987, I mean, the business had kind of passed him by, which is kind of sad. But, yes, the way it was, Gordon was not very good any longer. All right. Oh, and in The Observer, Lance Russell got it as well. So I'm not, and that surprises mm, doesn't really surprise me. One thing that did surprise me when I looked over The Observer Awards, a lot, a, a lot of people were watching Memphis wrestling and voting for Memphis guys like Lance Russell. 
like Austin Idol. And if you think Jim Ross is the best of all time, I'm fine with that too. I like Jim Ross in 87, um, but he's not quite there yet, but still great. I, um, you know, he, in 86, I mean, he changed his style from UWF to what Crockett wanted. I mean, 86, he was just like screaming through the matches, and in a weird way, I liked it. I mean, it's like, you know, this guy's excited. I should be excited too. Jim Ross was never bad, ever. No, if you t- if you cut Jim Ross in half, you would have two Hall of Famers. You would have the one from before the, his WWF career, and then you'd have the one afterwards, the, the voice of Raw. He's great. He, he, he and is. And he's still great today. I know a lot of people rip on him. But again, he does a lot of subtle things that maybe fans don't pick up on that still make him great. I need to watch more AEW. I, I keep like try, it's. I don't know. It, it's it's good. I acknowledge that it's good. It's just like okay, I, I can watch this or I can watch like you know some old tape or DVD that I have, I have laying around from 1982. And usually it, it, I go with the nostalgia. But do, anyway, do you hear that, Tony Khan? You hear that? <laughs> Tony Khan put no. you over beginning of the show. And and then uh, I stab him in the back. This guy I've known for like twenty five years, but I haven't talked to him in a long the heel time. Twenty twenty two, John McAdam. <laughs> Will John be able to redeem himself and turn back babyface? I guess you'll have to tune in next week to find out. As John and Jim Valley continue their discussion of the best and worst of nineteen eighty seven. Stick to wrestling with John McAdam is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. I'm your producer, Lou Kippelman, and this concludes our podcast day. (laughs) 